This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be obliterated by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is November 4th, 2011. This is episode number 41. We would like to say a quick thanks to barebones.com, the makers of BB Edit, and also to MailChimp.com for making this show possible. We will tell you more about them as the show progresses. We also want to say that bandwidth for this episode is provided by reinvigorate.net, real-time web stats and heat maps. Simple, affordable, and awesome. You can use promo code 5x5 and you'll get 10% off for the life of your account at reinvigorate.net. Hey, John, Syracuse. Hey, Dan, Benjamin. We have a guest. We do. First for, for the first show. First time right? ever. Yeah. yeah. Who is it? It is Jeff Atwood. I've heard how that could, name. How can we describe Jeff Atwood? Creator of Coding Horror. Very popular programming blog from way back when, but more widely known today as, what, what do you call it, your co-founder of yeah. Stack Overflow? Is that the correct title, Jeff? Mm-hmm. It is. Sure. Co-founder of Stack Overflow, the Stack Exchange network of Q&A websites. If you're a programmer and you have a question about how to do something, stackoverflow.com is the site for you. And they have expanded. They now have an empire, the Stack Exchange network of <laughs> Q&A sites about, I don't know how many topics you have, 50-something? Huge number of topics. Everything from cooking to video games to bicycling to do-it-yourself home improvement. Uh, he does this with Joel Spolsky, who is still too big to come in the show, but we'll get him eventually someday. <laughs> and uh, we asked Jeff. Oh, yeah, Jeff is Jeff. very much a man of the people. Yes, he is. He is. He's, <laughs> he's, he's very, very into doing things out in, in the open. And this would qualify as a, one of those things. Oh, and uh, he was on the Pipeline, I believe, the Pipeline interview show that Dan does. So oh. if you want to learn yeah, who put Jeff that in is and get extensive background on, on him and his business, and his interests, go listen to that episode of The Pipeline. In fact, you may want to pause this now, go find that episode of The Pipeline, download it, I'll put it in the show notes, and then resume when you, when you understand who Jeff is and where he's coming from. I've already got it in the show notes. It was episode number 38, which was recorded January 11th of 2011. Oh, I don't actually know. It probably wasn't recorded January 11th, but it was released January 11th. So welcome yes. back, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. And and that was a good show. I've gotten compliments on that show. People really liked that show. It showed day. that and you were you were a human being and not just a, a fearful, shocked looking avatar. That's right. That's right. And and hopefully we won't be recapping that here. Like no. this is gonna no, be a slightly definitely not be. podcast. That's why I suggested people too. So the re- the reason I wanted to have Jeff on is because uh he was kind enough to have me on his podcast, the Stack Exchange podcast with him and Joel and a couple other cast of characters who come in and out. And that's mostly about talking about the Stack Exchange Network, and uh, they invite on different people who are involved in the Stack Exchange, Network, Stack Exchange Network in some way, or who are longtime fans of it like I am, and just interesting people in general, you know. Uh, yes. So I was on there, and uh, at the end of that podcast, I think, Joel and Jeff and I got into a tiny little microcosm of the typical Mac PC arguments that were had on the internet in, in decades past. And I thought that was fun. And then we were, you know, poking each other on Twitter about Apple and related topics. And I, I figured uh, a lot of other people told us to, to uh, take it somewhere else. So we're taking it to a podcast, taking it to my podcast, where we have enough room to stretch out and have a good old-fashioned Mac PC, 
Apple is the devil. Apple is great argument. <laughs> and hopefully in a different tone, a different, slightly different take than you've heard on it. Something maybe a little more thoughtful, hopefully, not just knee-jerk Apple versus PC. Because I don't really, I'm not really interested in that. But I think there is some nuance to it that yeah, well, so we can add. I, I, I was going to say that, like, I mean, this is all in fun on Twitter and everything, but it, two things. One, when I when I thought of having a podcast of my own, I wanted to have a podcast where I would get people who disagreed with me on the podcast and then I would argue with them because I like arguing with people. But I also understood that a lot of people don't like to hear other people argue. They find they find it irritating. They don't like it when people are disagreeable. They want information to be conveyed and they want to be entertained, but they don't want to just hear a bunch of people bickering. So there's some people who like that and some people who don't. So I've had to balance that. Dan disagrees with me enough to give enough flavor in that regard. But the second thing I want to say is that my prediction before we even begin this is that Jeff and I probably agree on almost everything and it just comes down to like how we say it and where we insert the snark uh, and maybe our backgrounds. But when it comes down to the actual individual points, I think we will find we are mostly in violent agreement, even though we may sound very different when we talk about this topic. And before we start that, one thing I wanted to bring up, if it's okay with you, is uh, you had mentioned, and I think you had brought this up on Twitter, I don't remember, but I, I remember coming from you several times about how difficult it is to watch uh, shows, television and movie, uh, where children are in danger, like once you have a child, <laughs> this was it's, yeah. This there was a one post I did on my uh, my personal yeah, Tumblr like, blog. I didn't understand I that. Like that. I, I think I'm trying to remember the history, but it, there's it's so true. It's so true that like once you have a kid, it just unlocks some door in you where watching these movies and stuff where children are in danger becomes really painful. Like you really internalize that. Like what would happen? Like the most horrible thing you can think of is something happening to your child. And then uh, sort of once that door has been unlocked in you, man, it, it, it really changes the way you look at those shows. Because I, I think I was very skeptical. It's like, oh, whatever. You know, people are very sensitive about this. Like, that doesn't make sense. And then, uh, sure enough, I, I believe John was right. Like, now when I watch stuff like that, I, 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 I cringe, really. <laughs> and, no, I, and it's not cerebral you. at all. Like, your, your rational brain is like, yeah, whatever, no big deal. It's not like, you know, I distinguish between things that make you uh, upset or nervous cerebrally like for example if people who don't like public speaking uh like me for example yes the thought of going up in front of a room and speaking in public you know it's like oh boy i'm really nervous about this you know you're nervous right whereas there are other things like for example watching some horrible stupid b sci-fi movie that just happens to have children in danger your rational brain's like oh this movie is stupid but there's some other part of you that's triggered by these children in danger you're like what is this feeling i'm having but it does like it doesn't connect <laughs> With the rational part of your brain, because I, I, or even if it's a movie you've already seen, I've seen this movie fifty times. Well, why is this bothering me? Why, why is my heart rate increasing? Why do I feel a little bit upset? You know, and you feel, you, John, you feel manipulated too. You feel like, wow, they're really just pushing my buttons, right? Like they're doing this just to get a rise out of me, and you know, it really well, works. I, I, uh, I it, don't know if I go that far because I'm, I'm still able to understand that it's not, it's not them, it's me. Like that was the point of my blog post. I'll put it in the show notes. It's like it's not. A lot of people watch that and they get upset about the people who made this movie. Like, oh, well, I'm offended. Well, I never, you know, and people don't realize that the things that are going to upset you have so much more to do with you than they do with the creator. And it's not like this movie is bad or those people are out to get you because they happen to have children in peril. And one of the examples I think I gave was something like if you were in a horrific car crash sometime in your life, any movie or television show that involves a car crash, you will, it, you, it will find upsetting, right? But that, then people will make the leap to say, I hate these people who made the show with the car crash. Don't they understand that people out there have had car crashes and this is very upsetting to us? You don't don't hate the creators. Well, there, you know, it's, uh, it's not the content itself that's inherently evil or manipulative. 
they just can't account for all the experiences that individual people might have had. So I don't, I definitely don't, that was one of the points of my blog post. I definitely don't go through and blame the creators of this content. I think creators have to be aware that it has this effect on certain people, but there's just no way you can create art with worrying about, well, if the person had a relative who had cancer, we can't have a cancer plot line. And if the person was ever in a car crash, we can't have a car crash. And if the person have kids, we can't have kids in danger. And you can't create art that way. Uh, yeah, but th- th- there's a certain taboo around children. I mean, if you look at video games, for example, I remember in Fallout and other games, there's a lot of games where you just cannot harm children. It's just not. It's so yeah. taboo. And people complain about that, and they just shoot the kids. And, but it, but, it, but there, there's a special taboo around it that there's not a taboo around, say, depiction well, of yeah, car Well, everybody crash. has kids, but how many people have been in a horrific car crash? You know, it's a much well, more that's, common that's experience. Point. And the bond but, is so strong with children, it's just, yeah. So yeah. There, there, there's, a, there's a gradation there, and you shouldn't do something to be... Uh, intentionally manipulatively like I'm doing this because I know it will upset people with kids but if it's part of the story you know that's it's a balance I think there's something there's something to that I mean in you know anecdotally the thing about you know if you go to prison if you're known as a person who hurts children like even the criminals hate you right (laughs) like yeah that's what I remember hearing and I believe it right because there's something like even if you're a hardened criminal that's like basically evil like you will do harm to other criminals who have harmed children so I don't know. And a lot of it has to do with all the criminals were children at one point and were very likely harmed themselves. So that's actually an example of somebody who said, well, well, I was harmed as a child. Therefore, if I, anytime I see this happening, it makes me very upset. So the, the odds of a criminal having a bad childhood are very high. And then someone comes in who hurts children, that's going to trigger in all of those people. Not, not just because it's like a taboo, but because that happened to them. It's as if they were all in car crashes and then a car crash comes into prison. You know? oh, that's a really interesting theory. That makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think all criminals were necessarily mistreated children, but I agree. No, it's just more more likely. It's, it's compounding because even if you if sure. you were in, not in a place full of criminals, even just normal people with normal childhoods would not like you. Yeah, you're you're right. It is it is one of the bigger taboos that's out there, with yeah. with very good reasons. I'm I'm a humongous fan of evolutionary uh, explanations of almost everything, so mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense that things that harm children would be upsetting because all of the people who were not upset by harm to children didn't successfully make their pass on their genes. You know what I mean? That's a, that's also a good point. So moving on from that, although I, John was absolutely right about this. You can write that down, John. I, you were right about that. <laughs> uh, I, I am reading the Steve Jobs biography. I haven't gotten deeply into it, but yeah. immediately I'm, I'm, I'm impressed, you know, cause I, I was a little critical of jobs on, on, on the Twitter because of the, uh, I think what bothers me a little bit about Jobs is, A, he's a complex person, right? He has, he has a dark side, which I think comes through very clearly in the biography. But I was very impressed that he authorized this biography that, you know, he didn't vet. It's just not like a sanitized view of Jobs. This is a third-party reporter who liked Jobs, sort of, but wasn't, like, in love with him, writing, you know, his reality he's trying to write the reality of the you know the person that jobs was and that does come through even though i'm only like 10 percent through according to kindle uh i appreciate that jobs was willing to to do this at the end of his life say you know i'm not gonna have this reality distortion field of of my life i'm gonna have this reporter write exactly what he thinks and talk to the original people and um i mean that's a that 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 definitely is a, a positive measure of jobs as a man i think that, that he did that uh, I assume that you've completed it, John. I'm I'm almost done. I think next week's show is actually going to be all about jobs. In fact, this if you hadn't shown up, this week's show is going to be all about the jobs bio, if I, if I could help it. I have a lot of things to say about it, but I'm coming definitely from a different place than you are, because I would imagine this is the first book about Apple or jobs that you've ever read. 
Uh, it is, but like I knew so much of the history. Like I've, like I said, I'm only ten percent in. But the early history, it's, it's repeating a lot of stuff that I knew. Yeah, you know? well, a lot of this is like you know in the culture now, where they, this, yeah. the founding story even, of Apple and stuff. You just get it through osmosis from being on the web. You know exactly. But I mean, it, it's not like I you know I, I, I knew of Jobs and I knew the history, and it, it's already a little bit repetitive. Like I'm not learning a ton new that other than again the complexity of Jobs. You know, having the, the dark and light side. Uh, that comes through very clearly that I think that does sometimes get lost. That was actually my beef. A lot of my beef on Twitter was that the painting of this, 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 uh, the beatification of, yeah, job. that happens anytime. I, I, I assume since you probably don't listen to my podcast, if you had listened to the episode where we talked, where I talked about Steve Jobs both retiring and then again when he died, I think I made a lot of the same points that you were making on Twitter about the dangers of, uh, putting someone up on a pedestal and not recognizing them for what they were. And I made some predictions about things we might see in the jobs bio. And sure enough, I'm at the point now where I'm getting to new information that wasn't previously released. And you can see a lot of the things I predicted, but I don't, I don't want to go too far off on that, on that tangent. But the one thing I really wanted to talk about, this is not really timely now, but it would have been timely if we'd gotten our acts together sooner is the thing that you wrote. What was the title of this? I just have it in my notes as Apple is King. Do you remember that blog post on coding horror? Oh, yeah, serving at the pleasure of the kings. That's right. So uh, I'll try to summarize it for you for them, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But it was basically about what it's like to be a developer for the platforms that Apple controls, with Apple being the king, and then you, you, know, you serve at the pleasure of the king as a developer. Uh, and you made a couple of examples about Marco, with Marco and Instapaper and his, his trials, and then Marco responded to your post, and then another person responded to Marco's response, and... I put a whole bunch of these in the show notes. People can follow the links and see the, you know, typical, this is how the internet should work. Someone puts a blog post, it's, it's interesting and uh, provocative, and then other people reply on their blogs, and it just goes around a circle, and it went over to Twitter, and the whole nine yards. It was, it was a, a great cycle there. But I think that's a good jumping off point for what I perceive to be strange continuing prejudices in the world of people who are not absolutely embroiled in all things Apple about uh, what Apple's like and the way they work. So uh, I guess I'll start by asking Jeff, what, if I've done a bad job summarizing what you were saying, what, what do you think your main point was with, uh, with that article and how do you respond to the people who argued against it? I, I think where I was going with that is that Apple is unique in that they really are willing to sacrifice you for the greater good of, of sort of the goal. And the goal in this case is, you know, a good experience for consumers. And I, as a consumer, that was one of the points of this, this blog entry was a consumer. I agree with it that basically they should be screwing their developers to, to protect me because developers often, if you look at like what's wrong with a lot of the windows ecosystem, it's that the developers are selfish. They want their apps to do exactly what they want all the time. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're doing the, the right thing for you. And a trivial little example of that is every app in the Windows ecosystem, not every app, but way too many apps, will demand that they run at startup. And Microsoft has no policy about this, so the average user has 20 things on their computer that start up at boot that are mostly, frankly, bullshit, right? Like, that users don't need, like, the Adobe updater to run every time they boot the machine. Uh, but this happily happens in the Windows ecosystem. And the Windows ecosystem is sort of a, a, a tale of... What happens when you let third parties control the experience? They basically, not to put to find a point on it, they up, right? And Apple says, no, we're not actually going to let that happen. We're going to give you a very constrained list of things that you can do. And if you sort of violate any of those, then, you know, you do so at your peril. 
And uh, uh, as a consumer, I appreciate that because I've seen what happens when you let developers have unfettered access to everything and let developers do what they want to do. Um, it's just hard. Like, so putting on my developer hat, though, you know, it, it's hard to stomach that. Uh, as a consumer, I love it. But as a developer, it makes me really wary, you know. And that was point number one that I was trying to make. And then point number two is just this weird bland acceptance of the things that Apple does as, okay, I believe in this, this, this goal of, of protecting consumers as the greater good. Therefore, I will, you know, subsume my priorities to match the mothership's. You know, instead of being critical of Apple, um, as, as I think they, they should be a little bit more critical, um, that, that was the weird thing about Marco's post was that, you know, his Twitter message was one word, sh- you know, it was like, oh, my God, Apple's producing this feature that does exactly what my paid. I mean, Marco quit. This is his company, right? His company does this one thing. Now, Apple does this one thing that he does. Um, I mean, there's a little bit more nuance to it. He does it, more, you know, better and all that stuff. But the core feature, I believe, really was copied. Um, very, very directly. And I don't know, that sort of thing in the, in the Windows world is, is viewed very harshly, right? Like Apple or Microsoft has stolen my uh, feature, whatever it is, antivirus or whatever. It's like, you know, now Microsoft ships uh, security essentials or whatever. Um, and everybody gets up, up in arms about that. But when it happens in the Apple world, it's like, oh, well, that's just what Apple wants to do. So therefore, it must be okay. And I find that a little depressing frankly <laughs> i mean i can I, add a little bit of color it, to yeah. that uh that that marco tweet because i was sitting next to him at the time he tweeted it so first of all marco already knew about the the service that apple was going to introduce in in uh, lion what is it called reading list uh in safari that that was known he had, he had blogged about it a couple of months before the thing he was upset about was because his prediction was that this feature would be something that would be in the in safari on lion and that's to the extent of it and in the keynote it was revealed that these things that you save for later reading will be synchronized with your iOS devices as well. And he had assumed that Apple would not do that. And that was a big, big competitive advantage of his product is not only does he do it better, but his thing syncs across all your devices where he assumed Apple's thing would be an island. So he was immediately upset, not by the existence of the feature, but by the fact that it was closer to matching the functionality of his product than he had originally thought. Uh, now, I think, did you read all the responses to the people? You were, I'm assuming you read Marco's response and then that Jeff Lamarck's response. I, I haven't, actually. Um, so if you want to summarize right, those. I will, I will summarize for you. So a couple of the, the things about the responses, I have a, a couple of quotes from your thing. Uh, one of the things you said, if Microsoft added a feature to Windows that duplicated a popular application's functionalities, developers would be screaming bloody murder and rioting in the blogs and web forums. Uh, and a bunch of people responded to, to show extensive examples of Mac developers doing the exact same thing you said, but in the Mac world, if the king deems it necessary, then it must be. Then so it must be. So this has, there, we have a long history in the Apple community of screaming bloody murder exactly like that when Apple does these things. I, I'm going to go back a couple of years. One of the first ones that they did was uh, Sherlock. Sherlock was this searching utility thing uh, I don't know, Dan, Dan you still there? Can you give me that? What was the thing that, that, uh, that Sherlock was squishing? It was Watson, right? That was incredibly rude because the thing that it was squishing was named Watson. And, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that Apple knew that they were stomping on this guy's thing. They, they called their thing Sherlock, right? Yeah, the that's name. exactly right. And it, it, was, it was a big deal then. And that was, there was also some other things going on. I'm forgetting the name of, 
of the other app that was out shortly after that time period. But Apple did a similar thing when it came to like, it was a task switcher app so that you could do command tab and you could switch, but it didn't just let you switch apps. It presented a very Mac OS 10 light light switch. Light switch. There you go. I think we've might've even talked about this before in the same context that light switch allowed you to, you had this great big, you know, icon of the apps that you were switching for. And, and then Apple released the thing. So there was, there was a beginning to be a little bit of a pattern of this going on. Yeah, and then we dashboard. Dashboard was a uh, almost a direct rip of Confabulator, which right, was this, right. this great product. Right? And when all these things happened, believe me, people were upset about them. Developers were upset. Huge debates went. And if you're not reading all the Apple blogs, maybe you're not going to see this. Because, but you'll even get a story on MacWorld.com. Or I don't know if it'll go to the mainstream media. Maybe you'd see something. I don't. I don't know what things Jeff reads. But what I'm trying to get at is that every time this happens, there is a big, very big flare up and pushback. But since it's happened so many times now. We all kind of know how this goes. It doesn't mean people don't complain. Now, the fact that Marco was, uh, you know, resigned to it happening, uh, it's two reasons for that, I think. First is that he feels like it's it may potentially still help his business just because it makes more people aware that you might want to have a utility that lets you read things later, right? Uh, sure. Second is that he thinks he still does it better, so he has a competitive advantage thing. But the final thing is that he realizes, having been in this community for a significant time now, that screaming bloody murdy about it does nothing. And fighting it is not a useful, uh, you know, thing to do. So it's not like he's resigned and he's like, well, well, Apple is the king and they get to do whatever they want. It's more like he knows that spending energy complaining about it is that that energy would be better spent improving his product and working on uh, things like that. Now, on the flip side, many people pointed out that Microsoft did this all the time with the Windows from like Stacker to things that do extended memory to antivirus to, you know, you name it. They were constantly taking, you know, Lotus 1, 2, 3. Those guys really didn't like Excel. Uh, yeah, Word Perfect guys really didn't like Word. They, they made a business on taking third-party products that were popular, folding them into Windows and driving the other guys out of business, you know. So, and and, the, and people complained back then, too. It's not like the Windows developers laid down either, but what can you do, you know? I mean, I guess the stacker people sued them or whatever and maybe got some money, but if you're if you're Lotus and you've got one, two, three, and Excel comes along, it's, oh, they're using secret APIs. Like, this is this is the constant tension between platform owner, platform owner and developers who work on the platform. It's nothing new in the Apple world, and every time it happens, some people are upset, some people defend the platform owner, and it's just, it's kind of the same thing. So I don't really see especially with the Mac, but we'll talk about iOS in a second. I don't really see a big difference in terms of developers acquiescing to the desires of Apple when it comes to Apple squishing third-party developers. They're just kind of like a steamroller, and people get steamrolled. And the people who get steamrolled are not happy about it, just like the people who got steamrolled by Microsoft were not happy about it. Uh, I well, think more of that- what Jeff is expressing is that this is a bummer when this happens. And I think we can all agree on that. Like, you don't want to be that developer. You feel bad for those developers. In fact, in my, my Mac OS X review for uh, 10.4 Tiger, I believe it was, I had an entire section talking about Dashboard where I made this snarky joke that I was, I showed screenshots of the product that it squished. And I said, oh, sorry, I, I got mixed up there. Actually, this is Dashboard. And the thing I was showing before was Confabulator. I know they look identical. You know, I was upset about it enough, and you know, I didn't have any skin in that game. I didn't. I wasn't an investor in either one of the companies or anything like that. I just thought it was a rude thing to do, uh, sure. but it happens. Sure. Well, I think one thing that, that factors in here is is, and, and honestly, it's a little Orwellian. Like I remembered because I went to the um, the official Apple dot com page about what's new in iOS, and I was reading uh, 
because I actually wanted to look at that. And, and, and I remembered seeing the reason this even came up was because it explicitly mentioned Instapaper. It's like, we have developed this reader feature that's like your, this, this popular app, Instapaper. And then I was like, wow, that's really weird that they would call it out by name and mention it and, you know, all that stuff. And then I went back because I was writing the blog entry about it and they had removed it and it would just cease to exist. Like that mention was gone. Yeah, that, that's probably not an appropriate mention because you don't want to be uh, helping your competitor there. But yeah, they, you know, they're clearly, they saw a third-party product that was very popular and they said, we should have a thing like that. And they but, could either buy out John, the paper or just do it themselves. And they just did it themselves. But the thing I'm complaining about is they went back and rewrote history. Like they went well, back that, and they, took, they took out the name. Yeah, they took out, it was, someone probably put it in that copy because they wanted to express to people, you know, here's why you might like this. You may have heard of Instapaper, but we have a feature like that. And then someone else came along and said, it's not really appropriate for us to be naming competitors. They don't name any of their competitors, really. They don't like to put, you know, that's just PR 101. I don't think it's like a secret. They just changed their copy. They changed their copy all the time. If archive.org caught it, then they did. But I don't. You know, it's not. It doesn't make it any more or less clear that they're doing what Instapaper does. And there are other products besides Instapaper that are Instapaper ripoffs as well. It's not like Instapaper was the only entry in the field and Apple came along. Well, I uh, think what counts against them here, and this is another sort of deep problem with Apple, in my opinion, with regards to development stuff, is they're they're so secretive about everything, and stuff you know sort of just magically happens, and that's why I think leads to some of this attitude of, you know, you, you can't necessarily fight it because, A, Apple will always win. It's their platform. It's part of the, the rules of the game, and, and I get that. Uh, but it's not particularly amenable to this. I mean, developers work best in open environments where there's actually communication and, you know, there's not so much secrecy. Like, on like example, on Stack Overflow, I'm constantly getting people flagging stuff as, like, this is secret. They can't talk about this, you know. And, and I don't, frankly, I don't care. Like, whenever I see that, I'm like, I just dismiss it because, A, I don't care, and, B, I don't believe in it. Like, I don't think you can be secretive about, like, APIs you're going to release. That's crazy, right? Like, that's counterproductive. That actively works against the goal as a developer. Now, I realize, again, that there's, there's not necessarily an alignment of what developers want and what consumers want, and I totally get that. And uh, I think buying into this culture that Apple has means you buy into the culture of the consumer is always right and Apple is always right. And, and you just have to live with it. It's sort of like being in a relationship with a kind of a semi-abusive spouse who basically can overrule you at a whim. Like they, they will tolerate your opinion, right? But when, it come, when push comes to shove, like they get final say every time. I'll see this again. If, I think if you had been deeply embroiled in the Apple community, you would have seen that, that ever since the release of iOS and that SDK – there has been a huge torrent of uh, negative feedback and negative feelings about Apple's policies regarding the SDK. And the very first one was the fact that they had an NDA that prevented developers from even talking to other developers who were also bound by the same NDA about the APIs. And developers pushed back on that like crazy. You know, it doesn't make Apple any less of a dictator to, to say that they're a benevolent dictator. But in general, they tried to be benevolent. So after, yes, after many months of people screaming bloody murder, I don't remember how long in the end that restriction on the NDA was in effect, Apple reversed that and said, okay, you can talk about the APIs with other developers, right? But still, you couldn't talk about them in public, you know? So it's it's a matter of degrees. The same thing with when they uh, when they put a ban on interpreters and then a bunch of game developers were like, well, we use, you know, Lua scripting or whatever in our game engine and you're destroying our ability to produce games in your platform. In fact, 50 of the top best-selling games you have on your store right now use the scripting engine and here's this new restriction that says we can't use interpreters. And it was aimed at, I believe it was aimed at Flash and a bunch of other things. But what got caught up with it, technically speaking, were a bunch of games that, that use scripting engines. And eventually Apple reversed that decision as well. And they reversed it because people, you know, 
it's there is a relationship there. It's a it's a strained relationship. It's a messed up relationship. It's not an open relationship. It's a relationship with a huge imbalance of power. But that's always the case. Uh, Apple's secrecy about its APIs and stuff. It, it's sometimes it's difficult to think how does that help consumers. So obviously, secrecy about products and when products are going to be releases, particularly hardware, but even OS releases and stuff like that. You can make arguments for why that helps Apple and that helps consumers in terms of the Osborne effect and uh, not pre-announcing things and not promising things you can't deliver and all that and, you know, all that stuff. But secrecy about the APIs, like, well, oh, we're protecting it from competitors. That doesn't make any sense either. How is that better for customers and competitors can just get a, a, a developer account with Apple anyway? So, But still, there's, yeah, this I, is I, the, you, there's definitely, this is, I was going to say, this is basically the number one complaint that Apple, the developers have about Apple, I bet if you surveyed them, would be that it's not an open relationship of communication between them. Secondarily, it would be like, oh, and we can't talk about this stuff publicly. But even just primarily, it's like, we have problems as developers, and we feel like we're talking to a black hole, right? And develop, Apple has great developer relation people, who, some of whom are on Twitter, and it's like, if you become personal friends with them because you meet them at WWDC, then you can maybe get your particular thing looked at and stuff. And they're trying to help. Individual employees are trying to help. But the culture is such that it doesn't foster open communication between the, the parties. Now, hold your response for a sec, Jeff. We've got to do our first sponsor. It's Braintree. Sure. Braintree is a Chicago-based payments company. They provide elegant tools for developers and white glove support. They process like billions of dollars in credit card transactions every year, and they're hiring. They're looking to find exceptional developers with any level of experience. They have a collaborative environment. They do stuff like pair programming, test-driven development, agile and extreme programming. And though they focus on Ruby, they also have client libraries in seven different languages like Node.js, Python, and even Perl. John, I'm just mentioning it. They will, pay, rise out of me. Keep going. they will pay up to $10,000 if you uh, recommend a developer that they hire. Uh, of course, you should apply if you're interested. You can find out more at braintreepayments.com. These guys are great. They do really the best job of, of processing payments for you, and uh, you should check them out anyway just for that, but they are hiring. So go over there, braintreepayments.com. Thanks very much to them for making the show right. possible. I want to do a little follow-up from someone who noted in the chat room. I, I was pretty sure I had this reversed, too, and, they, and I'm going to assume they are correct, and I actually looked it up. But the Watson name was derived from Sherlock, because Sherlock was a product that had many different iterations. So Watson was a name that was a, ta- that was a different take on Sherlock, and the next version of Sherlock came out that sort of subsumed Watson's functionality. So that was a more incestuous relationship than uh, I had previously implied, so I apologize for that. So anyway, go ahead, Jeff. I was talking how, about how... Shame on you, John. Yes, yes for, shame. Know, <laughs> for shame. I'm an old man. How could you make that mistake? Yeah. Uh, I, I think my beef there is, like, why does this even happen? Like, that doesn't even pass the sniff test for me, that developers can't talk to each other. I mean, this is crazy. Like, how did that even... Yeah, like, why, why is that get... policy there on, on day one, right? I think you will... I think by reading the, the, the jobs bio, you'll eventually get into, like, how the internals of Apple work, and you'll see... I think you'll be able to see how that comes to pass. Now, I, you know, again, wouldn't it be great if you could get an Apple person on and say... How, why, how the hell did you come up with that decision? Because if you had asked any developer, like pick a random developer and say, do you think this is a good idea? I think we should do this. They would have said, no, that's crazy, right? It's like, we'll, we'll start test. with, the, okay, so what you're saying, John, is we'll start with the beatings, but then when you complain enough, yes, we will maybe tone down the beatings a little well, bit. Well, the thing is, the thing is, that I bet they would have a reason for why they thought that was so. The reason things like that happen at a company like Apple is the same reason that, uh, that Apple does all these great things because Apple doesn't work like other companies where things aren't sort of done by committee. There's a lot of individual initiative or at least a very small groups of people. It works more like a startup. And so you, when you get one person in a position of power 
who has a really bad idea, that bad idea comes to pass. Whereas in another company, the, the edges would be filed off and that wouldn't make it through like the committee review process and there would have been debates about it. You know, that's, those are the same things that make Apple able to do great things. They also allow really dumb things to sneak out. Uh, maybe there's some uh, really good reason for doing this that I can't think of, but, but yeah, because it's like so bad for developers and so ridiculous and to imagine that, you know, I, if I had to guess, I would say the reason is, well, we want to try to prevent competitors from getting an idea of how we're building the API because when we built the, when we built the Macintosh API, we brought Microsoft in and we wanted them to make applications for us and they just constantly were, you know, they, they stole our whole API. They said, oh, this is how you make a GUI API where we're going to make a Windows API. It's very similar to this and use a lot of the same concepts and they would, you know, ask questions about the API. Also, if, if we make the developers not be able to talk to each other, then Technically speaking, individual developers can't talk to other individual developers and discuss how we've implemented iOS. Wait, like wait, this. wait, wait, John. So, so one thing that's crazy about that is, is okay, look at the PC industry. They, they are only now coming up with a credible MacBook Air. Sort of uh, I, I know, I know. It's not. I mean, so like even if not, you made it completely public, it doesn't matter because you're dealing with people that are so incompetent that they yeah, can't. All right, so to say, it's like uh, it's. These are bad ideas because if you were if you, you heard someone present you this idea, it'd be like that's crazy. It's not j- just knowing how iOS works doesn't mean you can immediately make a copy of it. It was that easy, you know. Execution is not easy. Just because you All know what we're doing doesn't mean you can do the same ecosystem. thing. All you're doing is is you know peeing in the well. You're screwing up your own ecosystem by doing that. That's what makes me crazy about that. Is I and I, I will go to my death saying this: that Apple is one of the worst companies for developers. It really, really is. Like well, so, well, so there's there there's more to a how a company is for developers than the things we've been talking about so far, right? Because well, it's just ultimately you know, who wins in the market. I mean, ultimately that's. I mean, this is again. It's, it's I mean, not just that. There's much more to it. So here, I'll give you. Uh, actually, I want to go rewind way back to the be- beginning when you were talking about how uh, Windows de- how Windows developers screw up the Windows ecosystem by like having their app launch uh, oh, yeah. uh, on login because they're so super important and they want their app to launch on login, right? Uh, yeah. And how. It, Microsoft is open and permissive, but then you get a bunch of these crap or apps that do this, right? Well, right. I- ignoring iOS for now, the Mac lets you do that too. Any application can launch itself on login. You can install an application and it can immediately say, I want to launch on login. So why don't, doesn't every single Mac application launch itself on login? There is no technical policy, any kind of reason why that shouldn't be just as big a problem on Mac OS, but it isn't. And, and the reason is cultural. All right, so, you know, What's the explanation for that? This is where you start getting into, like, an Apple person would say, well, the reason this isn't a problem on the Mac is because Mac developers are better than Windows developers. We're, we're better people. We're more cultured. We, know, we wouldn't do that to our users. We respect our users more or whatever, right? Uh, and a Windows person would say, uh, you know, that, that's not why Mac developers are actually worse than Windows developers. It's because Mac only has small companies developing for it and big companies do this. I, I don't know the reason, but there's, you know, I, and I don't think it's even useful to debate why that is, but it's clear that the, the policies set by the platform owner are not the only thing that determine the experience. Another example is those little menu bar icons. I don't, I don't know if you use a Mac or if you've seen Joel use his Macs or whatever, but you know the little icons in, on the menu bar, uh, Jeff, that go along the top there next to like the clock and a bunch of other mm-hmm. stuff. Well, applications can put little icons up in that menu bar. And back in the classic Mac OS days, every application wanted to have a cool little icon in that menu bar, right? So it would be, always be running. You'd have your little thing for... Timbuktu and now contact and all, all sorts of these little programs that have little widgets, kind of like the what do you call that thing in a the taskbar in Windows, the the tray area, the tray, yeah, yeah. So you know how like every single application wants to put a little icon on the tray, and then Microsoft added the little uh, 
Chevron expansion thing. So the, the tray doesn't take up 10 miles and it's just this war for the tray and everyone's putting crap. They have the quick launch bar, similar. Although I think both of those are gone in Windows 7 now. But anyway, that's I, another I example of... Your and so of, of both culture. platforms will let you do that. But on, and on classic macOS, that, that, that bar was completely filled with stuff. But in macOS 10, Apple didn't come down and say, you're not allowed to put menu icons in the menu bar anymore. What they did say was, we would really prefer you not to put icons in the menu bar. And if you do put them there, make them monochrome so they're not so so glaring, right? And And sure enough, if you look at a, t- a typical Mac today... Yeah, it's got icons in the menu bar, and nerds have lots of icons in the menu bar, but since most of them are monochrome, uh, it's not as bad as it was in the classic Mac OS days. So there's another difference between actually restricting someone from doing something and just sort of setting the tone, right? Well, sure. And actually, we had uh, Rory Blythe on the podcast, and he was... This is in reference to Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange, that that you should be dictatorial. And, And his attitude towards this was like, you have to be dictatorial... Otherwise, people misbehave. And actually, this goes back to when I was uh, when I went to the University of Virginia and I was a resident advisor in my last year. Uh, the sort of the older student who lives on the hall with the first year students. One of the things they told us, and actually did work, was you have to start out really strict with with the students that are coming in because if you don't, basically their behavior deviates from the like you start at a certain point and then it just gets much more permissive on their end. So if you start really permissive, then you end up extremely permissive at the end. But if you start off being really strict. Uh, then you sort of get a better container for the behavior. And I actually, I do agree with that. I mean, I think that's a large part of the problem with the Windows ecosystem is it was like anything goes, you know. Uh, but if you start out with, hey, we're going to be, you know, kind of jerks about this. Um, in, in some ways, that's what we do on Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. One of the reasons we get good content is because we're really strict about, you can't have these random discussions about like, what's your favorite variable name, you know, because that just doesn't go anywhere interesting, you know. Uh, so I'm I'm down with rules. I'm I'm absolutely not complaining about the fact that hey, oh, I don't like all these rules and rules are restrictive, man. Because <laughs> we we have that discussion like every other week on Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange. Like, why are you have these stupid rules, dear? And uh, there are reasons for the rules, and I respect the reasons for the rules. And I, I think going back to what I originally said, it, it ultimately comes down to the culture, which is what you were saying. Of of you know we oh we wouldn't do that to our users. Like that's that's the money quote here, right? Is like the Apple culture teaches you that, look, the, the, the consumer comes first. The user has to come first in front of your needs, maybe in front of Apple's needs, although I think sometimes that gets mixed up and you start serving Apple's needs. But I agree with the goal because, you know, I'm a user, right? Like I'm an, uh, an iPhone user and, and I don't want apps crashing my phone. I don't want apps taking over my phone. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to go in a, a, a slightly different direction here and one, one of the things that uh, Nathan Bowers on Twitter, who I follow, has brought up multiple times is that he really prefers the, the, the iOS app version of websites to the original website. And the example he gave is eBay. And I don't know how much you use eBay, but I use eBay actually a fair bit. And the website is kind of horrific to use. Like they've been through many iterations and they're all basically crap. And I think what he's saying, and, and maybe I want to see what you think of this, what happens is when you, when you push a giant website through a three-inch screen it forces you to simplify. In other words, you can't have all these dumb UI elements that kind of don't work on the main website and are really confusing. And there's also sort of a built-in standard set of widgets in, in iOS, at least on the iPhone. I don't have an iPad. Um, that sort of force you to do things the same way rather than the web has this problem of everybody invents their own stupid way of doing things, you know, because the UI is kind of like, well, it's a web page. I can do, 
anything I want. And now there's jQuery UI, and now I can have these you know other crazy UI elements that don't quite work like everything else. Um, and 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 I I see the value of that because when you force a, a complicated kind of annoying website like eBay through the the strainer of a three inch screen with a standard set of controls, you do actually in some ways end up with a better experience. Um, but I don't think people have articulated it quite the right way. It's not some magical thing about the iPhone that makes it work. It's the it's the three inch screen combined with a really good set of standard widgets and you know Apple being jerks about having UI consistency. I mean, do you remember when there used to be OS style guides of like when you build an app, you're supposed to have a certain style to your the, your app. There still are. The, the Apple still has, Microsoft has one too, I believe. I mean, everyone has one. It's a they human do. interface guidelines document for what application. This, I don't know. I assume Microsoft but you know has what one. Killed that, John. The web killed that because the web is whatever UI you want it to be. Well, the document still exists and continues to be updated for the desktop. They, there is no style guide for the web, which is the point you just made. Like there, there's no one saying this is what a website has to look like. You do whatever the hell you want. But the iPhone is a style guide for the web. I want to say that. Like when you when you push a website through a three-inch screen, all of a sudden you end up needing. Well, a style. it's not. If you look at a lot of mobile websites, uh, what they what they try to look like, especially since the iPhone was the first mobile device with a browser worth a damn. So that's what people you know made their mobile websites for. And what a lot of people tried to make them look like was make them look like iOS apps. Right down to stealing the graphics for the buttons and the scroll stuff, and you know the list view and all that stuff. Just because, you know, it looks native, right? That's a good thing. At least, A, there's a standard, because that's what drives me crazy about the web is that, yeah, it's a great hotbed of innovation, but it's all over the map in terms of UI. Like, it's a major regression in terms of UI standards. So I'm going to mangle this guy's name here, but uh, I saw this at at an event apart uh, conference on web development a while back. Luke Robluski? Sorry, Luke. No, Uh, you you nailed it, Robluski. I got it. Uh, so he nice. does a presentation called Mobile First, which is uh, an ad, sort of an advocacy presentation to saying when you're designing your website, design the mobile website first. And then if if you think it needs more, enhance it for desktop use. Uh, and it's a very compelling case. And it makes all the same points that you just made is that if you if you try to make a website the old fashioned way. And again, this is a conference for web designers who have been making websites is that you're going to end up adding too much crap. Uh, so if you make the mobile website first, you may realize that, you know, all we need on this page is the thing, or eBay is an example, you know, the thing to search, the thing to make a bid to sing to see the latest bidders are and see the description and the pictures. And all that other crap that's on that page is kind of just noise. So make the mobile website first and then make your browser window bigger and load the mobile, you know, you just designed the mobile website, make your browser window bigger and say, all right, well, some of these things are, don't, are kind of ridiculous on the desktop. Maybe we could add some more information here and some more information there and then stop and you're done. Uh, I put the link to it in the show notes. This is this is an example of simplification being forced on the web by the fact that when you have a three-inch screen, you just you just can't put all that crap there. You can't have the big flashy banner. You don't even have room for scroll bars. Uh, and, and there's no drop- flash, which is a good thing. I mean, yeah. as, as much as I, you know, I, I'm ambivalent about some of Apple's policies, but I loved the flash policy because to me that was like the floppy drive of the web. You know, it was like Apple saying, you know what, we don't like floppy drives. No more floppy drives. And everybody's like, what? No more floppy drives. But if, if you were a hardcore techie, this made total sense, you know, uh, and, and sort of putting their foot down and saying, look, there will be no flash. And that's an example of what you, 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 you talked about. Like when you start with a mobile design, you obviously you can't have flash because it's not even supported on iOS devices. <laughs> but this is a net good to humanity, I would argue, right? Like we don't really need more flash. Uh, so I, I totally uh, support that. So, so yeah, getting back mobile. to uh, no. Before to we do, iOS. let me let me do our no. second. We got to do no, our second. We got to pay some bills. 
This is a good one to pay, John. You're, you guys are both should be thrilled about this, but this for John Syracuse, I feel like he's been waiting his whole life for this sponsorship. <laughs> it's BB Edit, leading professional HTML and text editor for the Mac from the folks at barebones.com, especially crafted in response to the needs of web authors such as John Syracuse and software developers such as John Syracuse. This award-winning product provides an abundance of high-performance features for editing, searching, and text manipulation. It's got a great interface with easy access to their best-of-class features from grep pattern matching, search and replace across multiple files, project definition tools. I mean, it just goes on and on. This is, this is for developers, for coders, for people who write code all day long and, uh, and want the features that allow them to do that effectively. Um, that's what these guys offer. So it doesn't matter. Programming, building websites. Anytime you need to type, just launch BB Edit. It doesn't suck. Barebones.com. Think you can get it in the Mac App Store? Go try it out today if you're not using it. I've heard good things. I feel like I could have done that ad. You should have done that ad. <laughs> do you want to do it? I'm, I'm a, uh, we'll do take two. And you do. My yeah, we already did. We already yeah. Or, you know, we can do a separate show about my hatred for all Windows editors. <laughs> <laughs> ultra edit. No, it's not ultra. All right. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, the, ultra edit. That was the best uh, editor I, they had going. I know. A decade that's ago. what's so sad about it. Yeah. All right. So I, actually, I want to get back to uh, talking about uh, the what what Apple brings to you as a developer for being on that platform. Uh, Jeff mentioned before. Obviously, if they have a lot of customers, that doesn't hurt. You know what I mean? Uh, right. So it could be argued that the most important thing the platform owner brings, brings to developer is the platform owner through its decision-making process has made it so lots of people own devices with that platform and that broadens your base that you can sell into. So that's why you can argue that Microsoft was the best platform owner of the 80s and 90s because they made the biggest platform and if you wanted to sell a lot of copies of software, Windows was the place to go. Because even if you sold a copy to every single Mac user, it wouldn't be you know as much as selling to uh, a, a small percentage of uh, Windows users. Right. Right. Uh, but then people so, sort of stop paying for software. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, continue. that's a whole other issue of like who is more likely to pay for software, Windows user or Mac user. But the, the other thing I want to say that the platform owners bring to you as a developer, we've already talked about all the things that they're, they're against you with and they're annoying about and bad communication and they're stomping on your, your products and stuff like that. But the other thing that they bring with them, I think, that's usually overlooked is the culture of the platform, the culture that the platform owner brings. So again, getting back to those icons in the menu bar, in classic macOS, the culture had gotten to the point such that every single Mac application, including many popular ones, even though there was like very few Mac developers and Mac market share was tiny and this was classic macOS days, it was still getting kind of gunked up with the equivalent of those stickers on the laptops. You had those little icons all over your menu bar and it was out of hand and they were all just, you know, everyone wanted a piece of the real estate on the thing and Apple wasn't good at managing that culturally and it sure didn't, you know, it it didn't put a... uh, technical limit on or anything like that and mac os 10 come out still no technical limit you can put your icons in the menu bar and people did but what they what they did yeah yeah so they said please don't put menu, uh, icons in the menu bar they had said that before too but what they did was say look look what a ui can look like when we strip out all this noise because mac os 10 was kind of a reboot of the mac ui everything changed you know drop down menus more or less the same but the windows the scroll bars the look of the applications the way applications were designed the moving parts of them everything about it you know Said, look what we can do when we strip down uh, an application. And the other, the things that the platform owner brings to you is when you make an application on that platform, developers love to be able to not have to write a lot of code and get something cool looking, which which partially explains the huge popularity of Brush Metal. I don't know if Mac, uh, if 
if Jeff was into the the Apple platform and knew much about it back then, but there was a point where there every single application that came up for the Mac had this brushed metal look. You know, you can see it in iTunes now. I don't want to bring up Jeff's favorite application, iTunes, but oh uh, god, yeah, Mac used to say oh, that god. too, by the way. But uh, but yeah, everything was brushed metal, and it's like, and the 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 cruddier the developer was, the more they wanted to make everything brushed metal. Why do developers want to make things brushed metal? Because all you had to do was tick a checkbox that said this window that I'm going to pop up on the screen, make it brushed metal, and brushed metal was cool looking, right? That's an example of a negative influence. But in general, Apple gave you standard controls and in Interface Builder, you know, it would automatically snap to the metrics they wanted and everything. And you, you had as examples their applications. And it was actually harder to make a horrendously ugly application than to just simply use the standard controls they gave you and, and copy one of Apple's existing applications. And the same thing goes for the iPhone. They made a set of controls that was extremely limited, ridiculously limited, especially with Mac developers coming over to iOS to like, so this is all I get, These, this set of buttons and this set of views. Like there, there wasn't as many, you know, there, there wasn't as much stuff. There was very few elements. And they said, all right, well, I'm going to look for the Apple application that's most like mine, and I'll make mine look sort of like that. They led by example, by giving you controls and widgets and layouts and, and, and bundled applications that look and behave a certain way. It, I don't know if it shamed the developers into changing their attitudes, but it's like they, they're leading by example. And that, that, and that makes for more successful applications because developers will say, all right, well, I'm gonna. If I had made this application completely in isolation, it would be an ugly piece of crap. But now that I've seen everything that Apple has done and the the toolkits they're giving me to do to build stuff, my thing can't help but end up being better looking. Uh, compare that to Windows, where Microsoft was content to continue to ship really slapped together bundled applications for years and years, be like, man, it's not broken, you know, don't need to fix it. And when they did change things, they would do things in a way that weren't copyable by developers. Like uh, I think Office, I believe, is notorious for not using standard controls. Like, there's what the Windows UI looks like, and there's what the Office UI looks like. And then people would try to copy all the Office UI by doing custom controls and stuff like that, and then some of them would make it into the standard toolkits toolkit. But that's that's not a good way to lead by example, you know what I mean? So well, that, I think Apple is willing to, to fight with uh, sort of its users and its customers a little bit more than most companies. And I think that, that is actually healthy. That's one part I like, is that you really shouldn't view... You know the, the classic adage, the customer is always right? Well, I think the customer is frequently very, very wrong about what they want to do and how they want to do it. And I think Apple isn't shy about saying, look, you know, we know what you want. And they, I would say they get it right about maybe 80, 75, 80% of the time, which is good. Uh, and the advantage of that approach is it sort of gets rid of the cruft of, imagine if the customer was always right. You know, that's how you get like the classic example. And I hate to even bring it out. Right? The Homer Simpson's car, thank you. Uh, but the it is, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Let me give you an example. Like I've, I've been spending a lot of time playing Battlefield 3, and one of the best sources for Battlefield 3 information, because it's a, actually a very complicated game and not all of it is really documented. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things you can do. It's kind of a sandbox kind of gameplay. Uh, and on the, the Battlefield 3 Reddit, uh, somebody was... was bemoaning the state of the reddit because what happens is when when the reddit gets really popular this is what they call a subreddit meaning if you go to reddit.com it's any topic and there's different reddits for like politics and you know all the stuff you took like on the stack exchange network there's there's you know uh gardening and bicycles and all that stuff so this one's dedicated to battlefield 3 and they were complaining that all of a sudden with all the influx of people that are playing battlefield 3 got very popular and the customers you know the people using the reddit were kind of abusing the Reddit. Like, they were using it for a lot of what's called meme comics, you know, where you, you copy-paste some template and then you post in your little funny thing and then people vote it up. Um, 
and it's amusing, but it tends to sort of dominate the, the information that's on the site. Like you actually want to learn about how do I play this game? How can I play this game better? You know, stuff that's actually useful. And the stuff that the users think that they want is this hilarious meme comic stuff, you know, and other sort of negative patterns that the community gets into. And, and the, the only sort of redress you have against this is actually moderation. That's the, the point that they were making with this thread. It's like every other Reddit that's had this problem, the only way to fix it is not to say, oh, we must do what the customer wants. Well, the customer wants to see these hilarious comics, so they must be right, right? No, they're completely wrong. <laughs> like, this is the attitude that drives me crazy, and, and Apple is in some ways the antidote to that. To say, look, you don't actually want to do what your customers are telling you to do. And you don't actually want to do what your developers are telling you to do. This is sort of a, uh, what's the right word here, John? A negotiation. <laughs> between. I, I, love, I love how Stack Overflow is so, has so altered your worldview. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe it's not, maybe it's not as, as noticeable to like, you know, I feel like I've been living with you through this experience since the very first Stack Overflow podcast. And like, you know, this, you know, this is this, you, you deal with the exact same thing as Stack Overflow all the time. And now you can't help but see other instances of the same phenomenon uh, that you either as, as cautionary tales or as things you've actually dealt with in Stack Overflow. And you're very right that, you know, community that's... <laughs> you can, Leading by example works in some contexts and not so much in others. So leading by example in that Reddit thread, not so much. But I would say that, like, this is a good... Going back to Stack Overflow a little bit, Stack Overflow is kind of the shining star of the Stack Exchange network. And I think it also has one of the strongest cultures of... You know, unfortunately, it also has the highest traffic. I was going to say Stack Overflow doesn't need as much moderation as other sites. I'm sure it needs way more just because of the traffic load. But the, 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 the heart of Stack Overflow's participants, they know how it's supposed to work. You know what I mean? It just so happens that it also has massive traffic, so it's also the biggest moderation headache. But compare it to like a newly born Area 51 site where there's some people talking about cooking or something, and they don't quite know how this whole Stack Exchange engine works and everything. Uh, Culture is so much stronger on Stack Overflow because it's more established, it's older, the people there know how it's supposed to work. Uh, and if you want to be part of that system, you will become part of that culture. Whereas on a, on a random Reddit page, there's no real way to establish that culture. Although you do have, I mean, Hacker News is a better example because it was a smaller site and they did have a culture of uh, a different culture than Reddit. But as Hacker News has become more and more popular, you see it sort of descend, descending into Reddit madness. Oh. Well, the, the religion aspect of this is really interesting because you do have to have the, the word culture keeps coming up. And I think for good reason, because it, it is true, like the original Stack Exchange model that, that Joel was sort of putting forth was that people would just pay money and they'd get a Stack Exchange. And the, one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons, actually, in my opinion, that didn't work was the people starting these had no idea what the proper culture was for these Q&A sites. And they got used in really bizarre ways that didn't actually work well with the engine because they didn't understand sort of what the goals were. And a lot of what we do, and one thing that's really surprised me is, basically it's, an, it's a culture indoctrination machine. You know, it, it's the software works a certain way. You can, you can pervert it to do these other things, but you probably shouldn't, you know. Um, and, and, and there are other ways in which the engine is actually evolving. Like as we get new topics, we have sort of, we push out the engine in different ways to accommodate these new, the needs of these new topics. But you still have to stay on track. Like my, my classic example for this is, you know, we're building a truck, you know, and you can't turn a truck into a car. You can modify the truck. You can get an extended cab. You can, there's other truck-like things you can do to a truck, but you can't say, you know, let's just cover up the back and then put seats in there. <laughs> and then, hey, we're driving around in a bus, time. right? 
you've kind of perverted the nature of, of what the truck is at that point. Um, and that's a, a lot of what we're doing at this point is, is indoctrinating people into truck culture, saying, you know, hey, this is a truck. It's good at certain things, and it's not good at other things, and that's okay, right? Like, and, and one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes is the one about, you know, saying no, you know, like learning how to build a feature. And ironically, he said this about iTunes, which now is like the ultimate example of the opposite of this, which is saying yes to everything and ending up with a massive kitchen sink bloat, which is more than a little ironic. But originally, when iTunes was launched, Steve Jobs said, you know, the way to build a, a product is, is, not to, is to say no to everything except the most essential things. Um, and then sadly, that got lost in iTunes. But it, it is true as a general, you know, truism as a way to build products, as a way to build hardware and I, you know, acknowledging, like, we're not going to do X, you know, at all. Like, it's just, yeah, the iTunes thing that, was, uh, if Joel was here, he would, he would do the Yagni thing, because that's what the situation with iTunes was. You ain't going to need it. The, the jobs and Apple's philosophy is always, you know, ship early, get the thing out, but remove everything and only sort of demand page in the features that you are going to need. Don't assume, oh, well, we have to have, you know, uh, right. a, a visualizer and, uh, a thing to print out CD labels and all, you know, if, if people, I forget, sorry, I forget if iTunes had a visualizer in first version, but they stripped out a lot of the features from SoundJam, which was a dri- it was derived from, and then slowly added them back as sort of the reason or demand came to the end. Of course, and then they kept adding and made iTunes do many more things than it was supposed to originally do, which is a problem, but that, that tends to be their philosophy. It's better not to guess what people are going to need but just put in the things you know make up the central core of the product. And you did the same thing with, with the Stack Exchange engine. It didn't have as many features as it has now. You didn't think, oh, well, of course, people are going to need to comment on questions, too. No, those weren't there. It turned out that eventually, painfully, it seemed like we did need those comments to, as sort of a, a steam escape valve for activity that would otherwise go in worse directions, right? But you didn't add them from the beginning. You didn't make a giant thing with every feature you'd ever seen on uh, a forum bulletin board piece of software and everything. So now we have a superset of all features of all competing forum products. You had a very, very small subset of the features and only the ones that you thought you needed, right? Well, I think it's the bravery of, of walking up to a potential customer. I mean, in this case, it's less clear because they're not actually paying us money. We'd have the careers product um, and saying, look, you know, you should go elsewhere. Like, we're not trying to be rude about this, but what you want, there's a whole internet for. And, and I have to say this to people. I'm like, look, there's a whole internet you know, and, and, and we don't guarantee that we're going to actually do what you want us to do. We're going to guarantee that we'll do a certain subset of things. But we get pushback on this still all the time. And I think new users are constantly coming in that see that the irony is they see that it's working really well. And then they realize they can ask anything. Like you could go on Stack Overflow right now and literally ask anything and get probably the best answer you'd find on the Internet, I would guess. Because we have then, such then a... Then I'll get closed off topic about three seconds later. But you'll get right. your answer. Right, but but it worked. Like you, if you permitted that, like it would eventually go in these really crazy directions, and it was going in those crazy directions. You know, that's one of the things we had to correct for was that we didn't realize we had built the world's best system for identifying the most hilarious programmer cartoon in the world. <laughs> yeah, like we oh, still that's... have the best system in the world yeah. for that. I'm surprised Dan didn't chime in with his "sorry to lose you as a listener" thing, which no, is I another mean... another perfect example of that. Or. Uh... Dan's humorous reply to anyone who makes a complaint about any of the shows is sorry to lose you as a listener. And I mean, he's doing it facetiously most of the time, but uh, it's the same type of thing that if people want a certain thing, like a lot of people have said to me, I'd listen to your podcast, but I really wish it was like 15 minutes long because my commute is not that long and I don't like stopping shows in the middle. Right. Well, that's just crazy. <laughs> well, that's, that's if you want a 15 minute podcast, mine's not it. You're going to have to go elsewhere. Right? right. I mean, that's part of it. A lot of the time when I respond that way, it's people t- saying, th- 
this is why your show sucks or why your shows suck or whatever it is. And, and, and they're basically saying, this is why it's not perfect for me. It should be changed. And the fact that it's not perfect for me, it, it, it that's why it sucks. It's, it doesn't fill my particular need. Uh, so it, it, and if you don't change it, then, you know, I'm not going to listen anymore. Is sort of it's the like, implied. Well, there are a million other podcasts out. As Jeff said, there's a whole internet out there. If this is not what you want, it's not like you, no one's holding a gun to your head and saying you need to listen to hour long podcasts. If you and hate hour long podcasts, don't listen to them. There are shorter ones. Go find them. You know. But and you I genuinely am. I genuinely am sorry that they. You know that we we weren't able to produce something that they liked and i do feel bad but what they're basically saying is here's why i'm not going to listen anymore and 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 i do feel bad that they don't like it but this is this is what it is and we're not necessarily going to make that change and i'm they're Wait, they're sort of painting into a corner i mean it's a selfish request i mean this is another thing that we ask on stack overflow and stack exchanges when you're asking a question you need to ask it in such a way that you pitch it like how can this actually be useful to other people okay for you your commute is 15 minutes right and, you know, maybe there's this big audience of people. Like, if you want to build a case for, for, for your position, you need to make it clear that, like, wow, there's – look at all these people that have 15 minutes, right? Like, like you got to sell it. You know, you got to build up support for your question and, and, and extend – like, this isn't just my problem. This is the problem of many people who listen to your podcast. And that's the difference between sort of a credible criticism and one that's just, oh, my personal little pet peeve with your thing is X. I mean, that, that happens all the time on, on the Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow Network. And something, again, part of the culture is like, ask the question in such a way that you will actually pitch it to other people. They will believe in your problem. Say, oh, I have that problem too. And, or at least they could see how someone could have that problem and not just you in your room, you know, building your one little app. It's like, how is this going to be helpful to the world? And that has to be the sort of the, the overriding concern. It's like when you're asking a question, you're asking not just for yourself, but on behalf of everyone that has that problem or has that criticism or has that concern in the world. For the good and the of more people us, you can right, get to Jeff? believe that, the better off you're going to be. So one more topic I wanted to touch on because it actually is timely and it's very related to what we've been talking about. So recently in the Apple community, I don't know if Jeff has seen these stories filtering into his world, people have been talking about uh, Apple's restriction for Mac applications that are sold through the Mac App Store. Uh, now, Mac, all, uh, Mac applications don't have to be sold through the Mac App Store. This is for Jeff. Sorry, listeners. But if you choose to sell through the Mac App Store, you get many advantages. The primary one of which is that it's much easier for users to install an update and you get a lot of free... Uh, you get in users' faces. You get a lot of free advertising and awareness from being in the Mac App Store. So as it turns out, most Mac developers now have either the application only in the Mac App Store or in both, because you, you just can't ignore that market. You just make too much money on it. So uh, when Line was released, actually even before it was released at the Worldwide Developers Conference, they said, uh, we have this new sandboxing framework for your applications, which is a little bit similar to the sandboxing framework they have for applications on iOS. And they said, so we would like your Mac applications to be sandboxed, and here are the reasons why, X, Y, and Z, security, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and oh, by the way, we're going to require by November that if you sell a Mac application to the Mac App Store, it must be sandboxed. And this was announced in, what, June or something? So November seemed like a long time away. But here we are, and on November 1st, developers knew this date was coming and had been kind of panicking because they're like, my application can't work with sandboxing the way it works, or this thing that you're forbidding me from doing, I need to do for the functionality of my application. And Apple was like, well, we're going to have temporary exclusions if you really need us to do something before you can fix your app we'll let your app do this thing, but eventually it's going to go away. And they're like, temporary, this is the main thing my application does. A, a great example is a FTP application like Transmit uh, that obviously shows a local a view of your local file system, and then you transfer files to your remote file system. It's a typical file transfer app. Well, 
having an arbitrary view of the local file system is forbidden by sandboxing. Well, hold on. Can I, can I make one observation there and continue? It's like yep. there shouldn't be a file system. I, I would say from a consumer's perspective, the error there is file system needs to go away. Like, oh, yeah, no. You see, where, you see where Apple is going with this. I mean, you don't have yeah, to totally. envision it. Just look at iOS, right? Yep, right. Right. No, no so, files. Again, so, so, I mean, it's clear what Apple's doing. Yeah. And that's why most Mac users were like, you know, well, sandboxing, good for security. It's like, it's like CH root for the Unix nerds or whatever. It's not the same thing exactly. But, you know, but isolation is good. It makes install and uninstall easier and stuff like that. But people have existing businesses and existing applications that are having difficulty working with the Mac App Store. So, well, well oh, fine. But then don't, don't put your app in the Mac App Store. Well, at this point, from a business perspective, it's, it's a big hit not to have your, Mac, uh, your app in the Mac App Store. Uh, so, the November 1st came. And I believe on November 2nd, Apple sent out an email to all its developers that said, we're extending it until March. Or was it, was it March? Chat room can confirm it. I should have written down this date in my notes. But I believe it says we're extending it to March 2012. So you have, we have more time to work this out. Now, this is a great example of uh, both the good and the bad of the developer relationship with Apple. So Apple makes this announcement and, in June, and developers go, all right, well, let's try to start doing this. And then as you start implementing this, you realize they have entitlements like you know entitlements to your application that it needs to be able to use the network needs to be able to use the camera needs to be able to access you know x y and z they say well there's no entitlement for the thing that my application needs to do and it's not a frill it's like the core functionality of my application and as jeff pointed out you know there's the meta argument of like well if you sell an ftp app that's a dead end because really in the long run we shouldn't be looking at the file system and ftp is archaic and blah 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 but the bottom line is that if you have a well-known popular ftp app and it makes you a lot of money and people still need to use it you're not going to say, well, we can't we'll get it to work with sandboxing, so we'll forget it. We're not going to have an ITP app anymore. Right? Uh, There's always the th- Windows app store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and this is true for all sorts of applications. And it, it, it's even true from day one in the Mac app store, like a super duper, a great uh, disk cloning uh, application needs complete access to the disk and needs administrator access, but it needs to clone the entire disk. And applications that require administrator access can't be in the Mac App Store, period. Never have been allowed. So SuperDuper was never in the Mac App Store and probably never will be. And now this is just ratcheting it down even more. All right. So as developers are finding these limitations, they're complaining to Apple. And the developer's frustration is, we just feel like we're chucking our complaints over a wall. I filed a bug, but there's going to be no response. And what do I do? Like, if November 1st rolls around, I still haven't heard back from you. Does that mean my app gets booted out of the App Store and I I stop making money? You know? So there's lots of panic from the developers, and this lack of communication is a continual source of frustration. And you could see as the November date, first date approached, if you had tracked this on Twitter, the number of angry, upset, or fearful tweets going back and forth between people known to be Apple engineers and people in Apple developer relations and individual Mac developers were just ramping up to kind of a fever pitch and getting kind of heated and everything. And then the delay email came out. Uh, but the delay, you know... Well, there John, are is there people even at, any, at Apple even... working on this, and the delay is an acknowledgement that if we had just stuck to our November 1st date, it would, it would be bad, right? Well, what, what can you even do here? I mean, this is just Apple well, trying so, to retrofit iOS onto OS X, OS X. Well, 10. you know, it, the, what Apple's trying to do is make what it considers progress. And I think what we all would consider progress, because uh, uh, there's a lot been said about the security argument in terms of, oh, you know, if, if your application gets exploited... Uh, you know, infected with malware, it can't do any damage because it can't just write over every file owned by your user, right? Which is just what a regular Mac application, you know, so you're, it's confined just like an iOS app is confined. An iOS app really can't just destroy the entire system because it's very tightly locked down. They said, well, let's make app, Mac applications that are more tightly locked down at the very least than they are today. Right, um, and there's a big that, philosophical a difference with the, like... That's a radical change of the, the contract. I mean, I, I don't disagree with it actually, but I think 
for iOS, it was understandable because, A, you're dealing with a platform that originally had, can you remember this, 128 megs of memory. That seems crazy yeah. now, right? And that was, I believe that was, was that the original minimum for Mac OS X? Someone in the chat room can look it up. But yeah, those were... Yeah. yeah, so those restrictions made more sense. Plus, it's your phone. I mean, your phone can't be rebooting while you're calling 911 or something ridiculous like that. Uh, but I think the argument is much weaker on, on you know, OS X because, you know, th- this is a general purpose operating system well the I implementation mean, is weaker too though it's not required uh it's not as even in the most restrictive mode it's not as restrictive as it is in ios like you know, apple has been trying to strike the balance of they understand you can't just take the rules that apply in ios and just bam apply them to mac os 10 you have to have like all right well it's optional and it's optional and it's weaker and it's optional and weaker and you know and you know they're trying to use the carrot and the stick i was saying in my line review that the carrot is your applications will be easier to install and uninstall. You will have fewer support problems. Like all the, th- all the advantages of iOS applications, the things you don't have to deal with, that you do have to deal with when supporting a Mac user, like, oh, they decided to move something out of the library folder, or they accidentally deleted something you put in the doc, you know, because they have free reign of the file system. You've seen people just like, I don't know what this file is. Let me delete it. My mother's great at that. I didn't know what it was, so I deleted it, you know. And then you own those files so you can do it, but you just broke your application because of it, right? Uh, well, by the way, again, it was 128 megs of RAM and required four gigs. Of hard disk space. Yeah. So they're trying to they're, they're trying to give benefits to the customer. That's the carrot. You know, users will like your application better because look how much consumers like the iOS apps. They're not as fearful about installing and uninstalling software. For example, the Mac App Store was trying to bring that to the Mac platform. Like people, you know, if they're not as fearful about installing and uninstalling, they're more likely to make purchases. They're more likely to go Amazon one click really, purchase. You well, know? wait a minute. Is there really fear about the Mac App Store right now? Is this really a credible? No, no, I said fear before the Mac App Store. Like, right, because but now people with the App Store, but why Titan? Like, it doesn't. Is there a problem? No, like, no. So the, the fear was before there was a Mac App Store, fewer people were inclined to install software because it was a scary process. You had to download a thing, you would download a disk image or a zip file, and you'd have to drag it into your application folder. And this all sounds really easy, but it is totally not easy. That barrier between clicking a download link on on a you know a web page. And getting the application installed. And Windows has the culture of installers involved, and you've got the save document or run it and all that stuff. But even that, if you've dealt with Windows support, it's difficult to get people to click on the right button the three times to get the install shield wizard thing to run, right? But the sure. Mac always had a drag and drop install because it had application packages, which were a big step up over installers. But you still have to get the guy to understand that this little zip thing is going to expand into an icon that's your application, and you've got to drag that into your applications folder. And that's just a big barrier. The Mac App Store eliminated those barriers, at least. So now it's like, it's like iOS. Go to this thing, click the thing you want, click the buy button, and it's like ready to go. You know? Yeah. Now, well, sandboxing is trying to bring that further. Not only is it ready to go, but when you run that application, it won't spray files all over your disk. You don't even need to know where the files are. You don't, even, don't, don't concern yourself with that. Just like on iOS, we will manage that stuff. You can't mess it up. It's completely hidden from you. The library folder is invisible. You know, that's, that's the benefit that Apple is trying to give by, uh, by doing the Mac App Store and doing sandboxing. So one of the other things about Steve Jobs that I found really strange was the way he would just randomly respond to some emails that, that were sent to him, like sort of just on a whim. <laughs> and, but one of the ones I really enjoyed that he did respond to was somebody, and I, you'll, you'll probably remember this email, I don't remember the, the actual query that prompted it, was he, his response, the tone of it was basically that the PC world is going away and there's a lot of fear around the fact that A, there's not going to be a file system, B, you're always going to be on closed devices, um, that this is sort of the new normal and that it's hard for companies and people to adjust to this. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing here is, is basically if you look under the subtext of this is that MacBooks should not exist. 
And I agree with that. I think the only devices that should be out there are iOS devices, period. I, I really believe that's the future and that's directly where we're headed. It's like everything will be an Xbox 360, everything will be an iPhone, everything will be an iPad. This concept of general computing is extremely going to be extremely specialized, extremely rare. People will not buy general purpose computers anymore. They will buy devices that do sort of a fixed number of things. They will have an app store where you can buy more. Um, that is the future, and that's where we're going. And you I used think your, that, you use your truck analogy. Is that the same email? Or, he's, or maybe it was another thing where a quote from him. He's saying, well, existing computers like Macs are kind of like big trucks, uh, but not everybody needs a truck. Only a few people need a big heavy-duty truck. Most people just need a sedan, and that's iOS. This yes. is something that he said at D8, if I remember right. Yeah, many years ago. It, it, it's clear where we're going, and iOS, iOS is great because... It's like, we don't have to imagine what the future is going to look like. We have a brand new platform with no legacy constraints, and we can say, this is where we'd like to go. And, and iOS has proven that all those things they thought would be good for consumers and good for developers actually are. When you make it really easy to buy stuff, people buy stuff. That makes tons of money for developers, makes tons of money for Apple. Uh, people love the device. They buy it. You know, how many people installed apps on their cell phones before the iPhone came out? And, but, you right. know, so this is a test bed for all these things. But then you've got these legacy platforms. They've got Mac OS X. How do you get from there to here? You don't just abandon it on day one. You try to bring it over, and that's what Apple is trying to do. But Well, I would argue they're crippling a little bit intentionally. But that's okay, because that's what you have to, because there's this huge tension between the new world and the old world. Like that other new world versus old world blog post that I thought was very, very probably my favorite blog post on the whole transition that we're going to go now was the old world and the new world. So the old world is general purpose computing. You install an operating system. It could be any operating system, right, John? It could be Linux. It could be Windows. It could be Mac if you don't have the hardware, <laughs> you know, dongle requirements to, to install OS X. Um, that is completely going away. Uh, and I think right, rightfully so. For most people, that's just, you know, the file system. I mean, that's anytime the word file system comes up, it's like you're going in the wrong direction. Like files is just a broken model for 99% of humanity. Uh, so anything that involves a file system that's visible, it's wrong. It's bad. It needs to go away. And this is a painful transition, right? This is like the argument that Jonathan Colton makes about being a parent. It's like you die. Your old life dies. You, you stop living and you're reborn as something else. And this is not a comfortable process. You're trying this to say unpleasant. that Apple is ruining everything, but in the nicest way. <laughs> in some ways. Well, I, I, hopefully it's not just, well, you know, it's hopefully at the very least will be a Coke Pepsi thing. One thing I worry about is, you know, we're heading to a consolification is what I call this, where everything is a closed ecosystem because it just works better. Everything oh, is okay. controlled. Everything is installed on the same hardware. It's ultimately a better experience as long as the pricing is kept reasonable and nobody gouges and it's not a monopoly. Uh, and I do think it's a better experience for everybody. Well, unfortunately, um, consoles are moving in the other direction. With the, you download the game, but you need a system update and download three, three, these three patches and then there's some DLC. And, yeah. Oh, don't even talk to me. <laughs> I'm going to update my friggin' apps right now. I want to see uh, any pending app play updates a, a I have PlayStation my iPhone. 3 game, how long do you have to wait before you can play the game? <laughs> yeah, true, true. It doesn't block you from, from downloading the app, but I think right now I have like 10. Oh, actually, the, the, the app store just crashed on my iPhone 5. It keeps doing that. Like, I go into the updates tab and it just crashes back out. Must be a bug. All right, hang just, on. Let's do our last sponsor. It's MailChimp.com. Easy email newsletters. They help you design newsletters, share them on social networks, integrate with services you already use, track your results. It's your own personal publishing platform that lets you send 12,000 emails per month, every month for free, forever. You get tons of great resources to help you make really awesome newsletters over at MailChimp.com. Never been a better time to sign up. One final direction I want to go in that came up on Twitter uh, was that one thing I think that's really working in Apple's favor is that, that almost everything is a web app now. There's, there's real credibility to this claim that eventually you'll be able to do 
everything important in the web browser, with, with some rare exceptions. Um, I do believe in this, and I think that's another reason that, that... There's two reasons that I personally would say that Apple, at least as far as the MacBook line, I'm not considering iOS, that's a whole different lineage, but as far as the MacBooks and things like that go, um, the switch to x86 let them get the pricing way, way down, which is hugely important. I mean, historically, you know, Apple's expensive is the meme, but that's not really true anymore. They've done a fantastic job of getting pricing to where it's reasonable. You're only paying a, t- a small premium for a really nicely designed thing. And that's, that's a good trade-off for me as a consumer. I like that. Uh, so x86 transition was really big. Um, and the, the, the sort of the, the, the other piece of that is, uh, well, now I forgot where I was going with that. The platform that no one owns. That's where you're going. Mm. The, the uh, web was the platform that nobody yes, owns. Yes, yes, and yes, once yes, that yes. became you, important, you. I, you didn't need to have windows to get work done because that's right. everyone was using the platform that nobody owns. I don't know owns. why I lost that thread. That was a really obvious thing. But you're right. Like you no longer are tied to the crazy windows app exe that does this crazy thing that your business needs. All the stuff your business needs is done through a browser, which can run on any machine, really. So why not run it on the relatively inexpensive machine that's nicely designed, right? You know, that you didn't play a huge premium for, and it, it feels nice. It's a nicely designed thing that they gave a crap about the experience for the consumer. So, I mean, how do you really argue against that? Um, and I think that's a major factor in, in why Apple is able to do as well as they're doing, uh, at least on the, on the MacBook side. I did an earlier show, I don't even remember what episode it was, talking about uh, one of the things that I saw is the, the transition from, uh, of the technology industry from caring about specs by being a bunch of nerds who cared about specs. How many megahertz, uh, you know, uh, how many megabytes, screen resolution, uh, just how big is the disk drive? And it was a very spec-driven industry and that the PC model of hardware and software separate and commodity uh, hardware makers competing against each other fed into that perfectly. So you just had years and years of a new PC magazine coming out with a new chip that's a little bit faster and this computer has this much RAM and this much hard disk space and this monitor for this amount of cost and you can compare them based on the numbers. And the comparison I was making was with the more mature industry, the auto industry, where in the auto industry, they have numbers too. They have 0 to 60, horsepower, torque, Interior space, mileage, uh, you know, everything, uh, you know, cr- even crash words in this, everything about you can, you can boil cars down to numbers, but car magazines, because it's a more mature market, they don't just say, oh, because this car has the highest specs, let's just do bar graphs, find the highest specs, average the numbers together, this is the best car, period. That's not how car reviews are done. Uh, even though they do publish all those numbers, it's just as measurable as the computer world, even more measurable, in fact, if you can think of the many ways you can test cars, but they don't rate them that way. They say, well, this car has more horsepower and it's faster. But, you know, this car has a nicer engine sound or is nicer to be in or has better visibility or just makes me feel nicer than this car. You know, there's so many intangibles that cars are compared on a more mature criteria. And the same goes for the people buying cars. People buy cars that are not the most horsepower you can get for the money, that don't have the best mileage for the money, that don't have the best interior space for the money. And, in fact, that becomes even more so as you go up the scale. Like, if you get some fancy sports car, really bad interior space, probably a lousy ride, probably lousy mileage, probably really noisy but it looks hot and it's fun to drive. And how do you measure those things? There's no numbers for those. Well, so the PC industry has start, is starting to mature and undergo that transition, and that has helped Apple tremendously because they are poised to be the guy like we, we don't, you know, even when they were still getting murdered on price, on, on specs, because, I, you know, there was a bunch of us who said, yeah, I know that I can get a Pentium that's twice as fast with twice as much memory for half the price. I know that. But I'm still going to buy this other thing. Why? For reasons that don't show up on spec sheets. So as as the computer 
the world of technology has gone more into the mainstream and matured as a market like the car market, people started shopping for computers more like how they shop for cars. And they weren't as afraid of them. Like back in the 80s, people were like, I got to ask my nerdy friend. He'll tell me which one has the most megabits of hertz or whatever. You know, they didn't <laughs> even know the lingo and they were afraid of buying the wrong one. Tell me what to buy. That's why it was a winner take all. I'm afraid I'm going to get the wrong one. Did I get a Tandy? No, I bought the wrong thing. Oh, no, everyone's using Windows. Tell me what they get. Okay, everyone get the Windows thing. Get the most megahertz and bits and all, you know. And it transitioned now to, I'm going to buy the blue one when the iMac comes out. <laughs> yeah, the Windows comes out, but the blue one is so cute. And people say the same damn thing about cars, right? And then they end up with cars that are like, you know, a car nerd is like, you didn't get the right car. My car has more horsepower and it costs half as much. And whatever, you know, their, their thing is a truck buyer saying, look at what I can haul in the back of my truck. I can't believe you bought that new Volkswagen Beetle. You know, cars are a mature market. And I think computers are now becoming a mature market. And in a mature market like that, you don't win by saying we have the rectangle containing the most uh, memory and the highest speed CPU and the fastest bus. You just don't win that way because that's not how the market works. And that, even more than the individuals like oh, going to x86, that was necessary to get on an even hardware footing and necessary for compatibility and be able to run Windows software and the platform that no one owns, the web. I think all that stuff was important, but the overriding transition has been from a market that was dominated by fear and a bunch of individuals, a bunch of like, I don't know what you'd call them, uh, clerics or monks or the people who were the, the, the people who knew the, the digerati or whatever, from that market of a bunch of nerds comparing specs to a mature market where consumers choose based on a whole host of things. And Apple is benefiting tremendously from that because they've always been really good at the things that don't show up on spec sheets. Well, I, I think that's a fairly reasonable analogy, but one, one caveat I would make is that cars are, the physics of cars aren't really ever going to change, whereas we kind of rewrite the rules on computers pretty regularly. And I think the best way to explain this is, have you, have you seen the documentary uh, Tilt, The Battle to Save Pinball? I have not. It's on my list. First of all, it's excellent. I mean, everybody should watch it. Even if you don't really care about pinball, it's, it's just fascinating. It's a story about an industry where basically there's, there's certain sea changes that happen in the industry where a, pin, where a pinball, a class of pinball machine will come out that makes all the old ones seem obsolete. Like you just look at it and you're like, wow, this is the future. Like all the, all the previous games seem like a waste of time. And I kind of had this experience with like Battlefield 3, like because Battlefield 3 is the engine is, is, designed for, for the PC. It's not a consolified engine. It, and it really does make older games seem like, okay, this is clearly inferior. Like, you can look at it and you can see, that, wow, this is like, I'm, I'm actually there. The sound, the, the visuals, it's dramatically better than what came before in a way that makes the old stuff seem like a waste of time. And the problem they had in the documentary they were trying to describe was like, how do you take pinball forward? You know, in the 90s was sort of the, the golden era of pinball, the early 90s, where they sort of reached the pinnacle of this hybrid of, sort of some mechanical, some uh, digital displays and a bunch of really complex play fields. It's like, where do you go from there? I don't want to spoil the surprise because it's a really neat story, but they basically did it. They did it. Uh, they came up with something that sort of reinvented pinball. And I think that's the caveat to your story is, is yes, that's true within certain, the same generation of pinball. Like you stop looking at features and you start just comparing on color and feel and fabric and things like that. But iOS is a good example of reinventing the game where they said, you know what, the PC, and Steve Jobs has said this many times, the PC battles over Microsoft won 10 years ago. You know, and the iPhone and, and iOS is the reaction that was like, well, let's reinvent the game. And they clearly well, the, the phones were already a mature market. I would say that's a, like an example. People never shop for their phones based on what CPU is in it because people had been buying phones since before they were portable. And, you know, first you had to get it from AT&T, but at least you could maybe pick the color. But then after that, you're shopping, you know, people just other consumer electronic products that weren't PCs 
had similar components. They had computers inside them, but no one shopped for their TV based on the megahertz of the image processor. No one. It's just not how it worked. So when phones come along, or when the iPod is another great example. When the MP3 player comes along, people don't care how much memory the iPod has. Apple wouldn't even list it in their specs. Same thing with the phone. They don't. They don't list how much RAM. They wouldn't even tell you for the longest time. They don't. You know how many megahertz is a CPU is not important. People never shop for phones like that. People never shop for Walkman like that. Uh, so it didn't have anything to transition out of. And again, that was to Apple's advantage. If we don't have to compete on these stupid specs that we think aren't that important, we are free to excel in the areas where we excel. Uh, and the PC industry just happened to get off kind of like on the wrong foot and spent a long time stuck in that that world of specs. But the phone, you know, it's not like it. It's kind of all the same thing. It's like, well, the phone is replacing the PC and stuff. It's all it's all technology. It's all. We, I mean, we realize it's basically the same operating system underneath all of them. It's a Unix kernel, and it's. Mac OS X's basis on, on Darwin and all that business. The well, API is very similar. Is we know that, but from a consumer's perspective, even today, when someone buys their phone, they will they will never ask how much RAM it has or what the CPU is, unless they're a nerd. But even today, when a regular layperson is shopping for computers, if you know, they may ask how much memory it has. That may come up in the conversation because it's still a factor, and that has a lot to do with like how memory is managed on the systems and why it might be a factor. But a lot of it is just cultural. Like I've learned when I go shopping for a PC. I should ask about these spec things. It's less so than it has been in the past, but we're still like coming out of that phase of PCs, those dark ages, I would say, of the PC's uh, existence. Well, I think you're oversimplifying. I think it's really, like to go back to your car analogy, if I showed you a flying car and a car that had wheels, you wouldn't look at them and say, oh, I need to spec. You'd be like, oh my God, that's a flying car, right? Like clearly, this is a different thing than what came before. And I think you're massively underselling how often that happens. Like Siri would be an example, like, oh, I can talk to my phone and set appointments. Right, like that's not megahertz. That's like some new capability that they're trying to expose and, and popularize, like the flying car, right? <laughs> and that's the discrimination. It's completely artificial. Like Siri could run on the four, right? But they make it only run on the four S because it's segmentation, which I'm I'm fine with actually. Uh, but that's an example of again the flying car thing, and I, I think it's a little disrespectful to the computer industry to say everything was always done in specs. It was like, oh my god, VisiCalc, I can actually. Do all oh, yeah, this, no, there was, yeah, there was definitely that, that whole thing of like the, the things leapfrogging the previous one. I would say the internet is the biggest new feature that, you know, uh, there was nothing technically, uh, you know, an old computer could still do internet stuff. But once the internet came along, that was a diminishment of what do the specs mean? Because what you really want to do with the computer is connect to other people. And that was a new capability. And the spreadsheet, the same thing. Like, well, I don't care how much memory this has. I just know that if I buy an Apple II, there's a thing I can put numbers on that automatically calculates them for me in real time. Right. There's new amazing things. So there's always going to be some new amazing thing that you can do. And that's the exciting part of the industry to me. And I think that, again, you're, you're really underselling how often that still happens fairly well. I, I mean, the spec thing is mostly getting as why is it that Apple is a player now and wasn't a player before? Uh, a lot of it has to do with them going into markets where specs were never a factor. But even in the Mac industry, where the reason the Mac is out, set, outgrowing, you know, the rate of increase of Mac sales is much higher than the industry average for generic PCs is because... The PC industry is finally, finally coming out of that phase where specs mean so much. Specs and compatibility, two things. So, you know, I can't get this because it doesn't run Windows, and I can't get this because I would feel dumb because my friend tells me that I can get a Pentium for half as much money. Well, we have obscene amount of power. We have, I think we've reached the point in Moore's Law where we have more power than really anyone can use and have for, like, I would say the last four years at least. Like yeah, someone made stop. that point in the chat room. They're saying, like, well, back when cars had 60 horsepower, no, worrying about how much horsepower your had, car had was a problem. But now you, the horsepower you have is as much as you feel like paying for in gas. It's basically the answer. And, 
and and conceptually what's happening is the things that require that much compute power are getting narrow you're, you're reaching the top of the pyramid like people who do video rendering people who do hardcore well, editing there's always gaming and there's always gaming there's always gaming but again that the consolification there's a certain standardization of you know xbox and ps3 specs are frankly really now yes, by modern are. standards really sh- but you know they still get by with it that's a five-year-old spec right and it still kind of works like battlefield 3 does scale down not if you get the texture looks, pack, you have to see it on a PC awesome. to understand just how amazing. Yeah, I know. Did really, you see that really video is. they showed of what what Battlefield Three looks like without the the optional texture pack that you can download and install? It's right. pretty grim. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and again, that's that's an extreme. But even within, let me give an example. Let, let me talk, ne- say negative things about myself. Like the PC gamer is kind of a rare beast now because who's going to spend five hundred dollars or you know, uh, let's say two hundred dollars, be more realistic, on a video card to play this game? Like I will because I'm crazy, right? But the average person, probably not. I mean, you're dealing with hot rodders, right? And the hot rodders are important. They're, they're relevant. They, they drive some parts of the industry, but they're not where most of the money is made. Like in cars, right? You don't sell, you know, a million cars to hot rodders. <laughs> oh, the, 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 the analogy used with the cars was that, you know, back in my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, people loved to work on the cars and clean out their carburetor themselves and stuff. And then all of them will bemoan today's cars, which are completely sealed and you need the special car computer to do anything complicated with because... You, know, you can't just get in there. It's not a machine that you can mess with with your hands. It's, it's become a closed system. It's like bolted down with a cover and you need an engine computer to adjust anything in it. And it's just, it's not open like it used to be. Uh, yeah. Uh, the only it, thing I don't like about it, uh, chronology works and I'm, I'm happy to work with chronology, but one thing I don't like about it is we'll never get into flying cars. Flying cars are never really going to happen in, in our lifetimes, maybe not in our children's lifetimes, probably. You mean like um, analogy was, flying cars or real flying cars? Well, well, my point is that in computers, we get into flying and beyond. Like, I think the, the things you can do are so much more... Yeah, well, yeah it's, not, it's not a perfect analogy because obviously a Turing machine is a much more mutable machine than a rolling thing that transports people. But, well, yeah, exactly. I think it... it, it I, I'm just mostly getting to like, the, the culture of the market and what you shop based on, not so much the, the attributes of the individual products. So the, the consoles are a great example because they are sort of going through the same thing where before... You had to get a new console generation every couple of years just because the graphics would be so much better, and that was driving the industry. And now, uh, for a variety of reasons, the next generation of consoles seems to be taking longer than the other ones. It's because, you know, all well, these graphics are good enough. I hate that saying, and I think they're not, but it's just the, the return on investment in graphics is diminishing from when we were going from a, a yellow square and adventure to doom like that was that's a big selling proposition and now you're like well you can look how awesome battlefield 3 looks like on the bc and look how horrible it looks on your xbox but it's like yeah is it you know i'm happy playing it on the xbox i know i can, but get I can never get it installed PC. on the pc you know and i have to buy a new video card i have to you know i mean these yeah. are reasonable valid arguments for for yeah and so there will be a new console generation assuming all those companies don't go out of business by then uh <laughs> assuming nintendo doesn't have to switch to just selling software but Eventually, there will be a new hardware generation of consoles that will have all the benefits the consoles have. Uh, but in the meantime, I think uh, the PC gamers, although they are a minority, I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time, in the same way I have a hard time envisioning the general purpose computer ever completely going away because, if, for example, developers will need it for oh, our lifetime anyway. Uh, PC gaming is probably about as small as it's ever going to get. Uh, but that's the analogy I want people to understand is like when you buy a MacBook Pro, you're, you're becoming a hot rodder. Like I know it doesn't seem that way, but in, in the new world that's emerging, you're a hot rodder. Like the, the MacBook and the MacBook Pro don't really fit for that reason. They're the hot rods. I know it seems like the Mac Pro is, and that's already, that was a ridiculous machine three years ago, frankly. Like the Mac Pro, now there's all these news articles about, oh, they're looking at discontinuing the Mac Pro. I'm like, yeah, finally. Yeah, you're, you're reading Apple sites now. 
Yeah, I'm like, finally. I'm like, well, it comes up on Twitter because but we all we all want one more Mac Pro, so don't jinx us. Because I'm I whatever the next I want them to make one more so I can buy it and then we can talk about getting rid of it. Okay, <laughs> because because as as you you know, I, it, it is a pretty whole... machine. But honestly, the Mac Pro is, has been the Apple three of the lineup for since well, forever. Well, no, but the great, here's the great thing about the Mac Pro and the reason people like me want Obviously, there's people who are professionals and they need it for X, Y, and Z reason because they have these seven PCI Express cards shoved in there and all these other reasons, right? But the reason I love the Mac Pro is it because it's finally the culmination of my dream computer that does everything. I can play Windows games in it. I can put a big hot video card in it. I can install lots of internal drives. It does everything. It runs Windows natively. It runs Mac natively. It's really fast. It's got a lot of room. It's got a big video card. Never before has there been this confluence of events where you can buy one machine that does everything for you. That it's, you know, you're not cut out of the world of PC gaming because you can just boot into Windows, right? You, you can use the Mac operating system that you want. And you can, it's internally expandable and, and user serviceable and you can open stuff up. It is the, it is the dream machine. And if and when the, the Mac Pro finally goes away, that will be the end of the dream machine because you can't, you know, it's like, well, what do I, for me, it's like, what do I do for gaming then? Oh, well, you know, you can, you can ex- connect something with Thunderbolt. Well, you can't connect a gaming GPU with Thunderbolt because, you know, 16X or 8X PCI Express lanes don't go over Thunderbolt. So what do I do then? Do I have to buy a separate gaming PC and then have a cute little Mac that I use? I'm back to the old ugly way. Obviously, I am in the vast minority of people in the world, which is why the Mac Pro's days are probably numbered. But it will be sad for me when it, it finally goes away. And for a lot of people, you know, I, you, you don't have any Macs at home at all, do you, Jeff? You just got PCs? Just the just iPhone. This, just, yeah, right. So you've, that, you're not losing anything because you were never a Mac user uh, to begin with. You're an iOS user, but you're never like, boy, when I do my daily work, I would rather be using a Mac. Right, and you're well, lucky you never just, well, got to that because if you had, they'd be taking that away from you. I'm, you I'm not super to... sympathetic to this because I, I think that the, the fact that Apple treats their hardware as a dongle to install the operating system is ridiculous. Like I think for guys like you who need that, you should be able to just buy commodity hardware, which is what it is. I, I mean, would never buy Mac commodity is a Beautiful machine. <laughs> I want to I want to give Apple their props. Like Apple does a beautiful job of really designing stuff and thinking it through. And if you look at the Mac Pro, it's a really well designed machine. Uh, but this idea that you can only install OS 10 on, you know, approved hardware is just ridiculous. I, I know no, you don't I, like it, but I mean, I, you I'm know what the advantages are. You, it, it may rub you the wrong way, but I mean, you, the advantages are obvious in terms of how they, Well, you, know, you could just install a hacked operating system is what you really should do. I know, you but know, like you can Apple do doesn't have to worry about that. Apple doesn't have to support every kind of hardware under the sun. They can they have enough trouble, believe me, they have enough trouble just supporting the hardware they distribute. Uh, if they had to support True. the entire range of, you know, they, they don't want to be in that business. They want to, they want to, it's like saying if you get iOS to run on any cell phone, wouldn't that be awesome? No. Same, same exact thing with, with the Mac. Well, you said you wanted expandability, all the stuff that really died with Waz, right? When Waz was no longer part of the company. Well, no, the Mac way. Pro is man, it's humongous. You could fit a little village inside there. <laughs> you know, but it, its days are numbered. Everybody acknowledges I, that. I know. Well, that's, that's going to be sad for me because that, that will be the end of my one dream machine that does everything. And, I, and, and in some respects, it's kind of ironic that I'm, the advantage I'm gaining is because Microsoft is so promiscuous. Microsoft says, yeah, we'll run Windows on anything. A Mac Pro makes for a really fast, really good Windows machine. All Macs do. If you want to buy Mac hardware because you like the hardware, it's got exactly the screen size you want, exactly the capacity and the ports that you want, but you don't like Mac OS X, run Windows on it. It runs really, it runs really well. They're nice PCs, right? And well, because gaming is that last thing that? that we need to wrench away from PCs, it means that I have to run Windows, and it's nice that I'm able to because when, uh, Microsoft does not like Apple in this regard. 
But if you buy the right hardware, if you buy from a very constrained list of hardware, you're using the same hardware as Apple's using. And then I don't know the state of the Hackintosh, like how difficult oh, it is. It can be done, but that's, you know, I'm an old man. I don't want to deal with those hassles. I don't want to figure out exactly the parts <laughs> that I have to. And Apple does have custom boards. Like they're not, they're not doing off-the-shelf parts from Asian manufacturers. They, they are making, I mean, it's not, they're using all the same chips and everything, but every once in a while there's one, you know, the, the, this particular combination of I.O. controllers and interfaces and, uh, and you know, chips and everything doesn't exist anywhere outside of Apple. And, you know, dealing with the Hackintosh means I can probably get it to work, but next time there's a system update, I got to rehack it. And it's just, it's that kind of hassle that I'm not into it. Like, for example, you with your overclocking, I would never do that overclocking thing that you do, but it's, it's what you're doing. You're, you are more like a hot rodder than, than anyone buying a Mac Pro because you are literally hot rodding your machine. It's not good enough the way it is. You're going to say, well, I can overclock the bus a little bit and then put two video cards in there and do SLI. And I just want something that, you know, for, to give the battlefield example, give me the best single card, single slot GPU that I can buy and stick it in. I don't want the SLI. I don't want the double GPU thing because it's too hot, but I'll be happy with, you know, the best single card, double GPU, single slot thing that I can uh, put on there. And yeah, that's, you're just in a weird place right now. I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's, not, it's, I, it's the place, you know, I, again, I totally recognize that this doesn't, does not sway Apple in any way, nor should it, because their business is much right. bigger than, you know, it's just sad. That's why people are sad about the Mac Pro, because it was this confluence events where you could run, you had Unix, you had, yeah, Unix and Mac was combined in Mac OS X, and that was great for people who loved Unix like me, right? And then to get Windows on top of that and games on top of that, get everything with one box. So please, Apple, one more Mac Pro, I'll buy it. It'll, it'll serve me for like four more years especially if I swap out GPUs, and then you can do whatever you want. Sounds fair. Well, hopefully they'll do that. I don't know. I mean, again, yeah. it's secrecy, right? So who knows what they're going to do? <laughs> yeah, rumors. You know, it, it, The worst case scenario, they cancel it. I can get a new one, because mine's not that new. Mine's several years old. I can get a new one for cheap after they can the line, right? Put it next to your Mac Cube. Your Cube. Ah, yeah, I don't have a Cube. I think Dan does. All right, we are very long. <laughs> no, there. I still do. It's, it's uh, sitting right here. I think we are way over time. There's so many 90, more times. Are you, are you nine, it right 95, now? no, not anymore. 95 minutes. Might be a record. No, we've done 120 on this show, right? I feel uh, like I could have a better argument with Jeff in person because the, the delay in talking, I, I would be more inclined to talk over him and interrupt him in person. <laughs> I'm sure he would love that, but yeah. That's fine. I, it, it worked fine for me. Well, if you, yeah, it, if, if you want to, how should, they, how should these people follow you, Jeff, on on Twitter. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Coding Horror. They can go to CodingHorror.com. Of course, please go to StackExchange.com and check out our awesome network of Q&A sites. And we do have an Apple-centric site that's doing really exceptionally well, John. I was looking at the stats the other day, and Apple is getting to be our sort of biggest site outside our trilogy, which is impressive. You can see that at StackExchange.com slash sites. I'm just going to verify that, make sure I'm not lying to you. Yes, indeed, 27,000 visits per day. So it's up there. So under Ask Ubuntu, but that one has some artificialness to it because it is blessed by Canonical. I mean, we'd, we'd have an Apple come out and say apple.stackexchange.com is our favorite site or anything like that. <laughs> Though that would be cool if they did. They could do that. So, uh, and you can follow John Syracuse on Twitter, Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter and elsewhere. And uh, also you should check out, I have this in the show notes. We've got a lot of, uh, I've been adding links to the show notes. People always say, how do we get to the show notes? You go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical, and in this case, slash 41, and you can uh, you can hear, uh, not hear, you can, I suppose you could hear it if you had your computer read it. Max, do that by default. 
uh, you can go to there and you can see all the links that we've collected. All the little links and little tidbits and things that were mentioned. We try to grab them all and put them there and you can see what we were talking about. And uh, really, that's it, right? I mean, that's all they need to know. Yeah, and, and if you are by any chance a programmer listening to the show and wishing I would talk about more programming topics, but you are not using stackoverflow.com, I don't know where you've been. You, yes, you need to are, use stackoverflow.com and, and uh, serverfault.com if you're doing sysadmin. And just those technical sites have been one of the biggest boons to programmers in recent years, right up there with like GitHub and other newfangled things. You need to be using Stack Overflow if you're a programmer. Excellent site. Can't recommend it enough. Great site. And uh, Jeff Atwood's interview with me on the pipeline is also there in the show notes. That was episode 38 back at the beginning of this year. So, Jeff, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.